now I would like to draw your attention, if I can, to Romans chapter 15. We begin chapter 15 this morning. We will be looking at the first seven verses. The first section of this chapter is closely associated with the chapter we have looked at the last few weeks, Romans 14, and the subject of Christian liberty. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would open up our eyes, that we might see wondrous things in your word. We pray, Father, that you would make our hearts soft, that your word would take deep root within us, that it would continue to change us and make us more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. You have heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. That in your Bibles, the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. The Apostle Paul, in the midst of his parchment, did not write the number 15 before the text that we have this morning. They were added later, centuries later as a matter of fact, by Christians, and for good reason and to good effect, to help us to find passages in the Bible so that we can memorize passages in the Bible. And so chapter and verse divisions are a helpful addition, not a problem. But there are occasions in which we come to a division and we wonder, why did they decide to put a chapter here? And this is, I think, one of them. Because the first section of Romans 15 goes very closely with chapter 14. It continues the subject that Paul has been teaching us, that is, Christian liberty, the conscience, peace and unity in the church as a result of Christian liberty. But now, Paul does indeed take a slightly different tack on the subject. 
And that may be, for example, why this division of the 15th chapter is here. Because now Paul begins to direct himself to the strong. As a matter of fact, in chapter 15, verse 1, is the first time that we see the term, the strong. We have been talking about the strong and the weak for several weeks now. But this is the first time that Paul uses the term. And Paul wants us to understand that while certain things or actions are indifferent for Christians, the believer cannot be indifferent to his fellow believers. That's what he is teaching us this morning. And so, to make us understand the importance of this subject, he now turns and points to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'd like us to see three things that Paul is showing us in these seven verses. First, he gives us the divine exhortation. He gives us a command, an exhortation that comes from God. Secondly, he gives us the divine example, the divine example of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are not sure how to follow this exhortation, Paul says, look to Jesus. And then the third thing is he gives us the divine instruction. He shows us how the example of the Lord Jesus Christ comes to us from the scriptures and how the scriptures were written for our instruction so that we might live godly lives. The divine exhortation, the divine example, and the divine instruction. Well, let's begin then by looking at this divine exhortation that Paul gives to us. He begins with an exhortation, with a command. And it's interesting how he begins. It's not what we would expect. We would expect Paul to start with the weak believers. After all, they are the ones that Paul tells us have the failings. We would expect Paul to set them straight, to tell them to get their act together. We might even say they're the ones causing the problem because, after all, they have the failings. They're falling short. They don't understand God's word the way they should. But instead, Paul addresses the strong. And he includes himself in that category. You'll note in verse 1, he says, we who are strong. And so what that tells us is, Paul has an exhortation for the church, and he includes himself in it. He's not asking you to do anything that he doesn't think he needs to do as well. He puts himself in that same category. Now, why does Paul do this? Why does he address the strong rather than the weak? I think it's because Paul is not concerned with best practices here. You know, so often when we think of any organization, any group, we think about how they can have best practices, how schools can teach better, how businesses can be run more efficiently. And we think about the whole, and what we do is we want to incorporate best practices and we assume that health will flow from that. But instead, Paul's primary concern here is unity. And it is the building up of believers. His main concern is the health of the church in the individual believer, not in the efficiency of the body. 
And further, Paul knows, and we know because he's told us, that the weak cannot act like the strong without sinning. They cannot violate their conscience without sinning. Paul tells us this in 14, verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not of faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so what he's saying to us is that the weak cannot just act like the strong so that things go smoother in the church. Because if they were to do that, it would be sin for them because it would not be from faith. However, the strong may act like the weak without sin. Even if the strong understand that eating certain foods or drinking certain drinks or celebrating or not celebrating certain days is indifferent or immaterial and that they can do it or not without sin, Paul reminds us that They can act like the weak. They can accommodate their weaker brother without sinning. They can refrain and not sin. And so the obligation, Paul says in verse 1, is on the strong, not the weak. To put it bluntly, the weak are not able to solve the situation. Paul knows the answer lies with the strong. And this is the way of the gospel, the way of the church of Jesus Christ, because the way of the world would be to blame the weak. That's because the world is all about power. But the gospel is different. So Paul will instead tell the strong to pick up the weak, rather than to denigrate the weak and to tell them they've failed and that they need to do better. Paul gives them a gospel remedy. He says the strong in faith should build up the weak. And so the first part of the exhortation that Paul gives is to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, this does not mean to put up with other people. The picture that we might have in our minds when we hear the words bear with is that we who are strong have to stand on the side and watch with disgust as the weak can't get their acts together. But, you know, we're not going to make a big deal about it. We're just going to bear with it. We're going to put up with it. Because that's how things have to be. And so, I think the best way I can think about this is, we, we see this all the time in our own lives. Every time you go to the Motor Vehicle Bureau, you go, and you go because you have to go, Right? Because that's the only place you can get your driver's license renewed or register your vehicle. And you go and you start by taking your number. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when I was younger, when you took those numbers at the Motor Vehicle Bureau, they were numbered 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. Now you go in and you pull J12, and the next person pulls E6, and then someone is A5. And you have no idea which one comes first. So as you're waiting, you don't even know how long you'll be waiting. It used to be that if you pulled number 12 and they were on number 1, you could settle in. You knew about how long you had. And so the whole time that you're sitting there and you're seeing them conduct the business the way they're conducting it, you are saying to yourself, this is really stupid. You know, if they put me in charge of this, in about a week, this could run smooth. Right? 
But you know you can't say that, and you just sit there, and you bear with it. But again, if you're like me, what do you do as you're sitting there? You start to fume, don't you? Because it's taking longer than it should. Not just taking long, it's taking longer than it should, because these people don't have their act together. If they just got their act together, I would be out of here, and I could do something productive. Now think about that attitude. And think about that attitude in the church of Jesus Christ. If as you were sitting amongst your brothers and sisters, your attitude was, well, if they only got their act together, then we could finally do some evangelism. You know, if these people finally figured out what the Bible says, then we could do some outreach and discipleship. Paul knows this is our nature. And so he directs an exhortation to us To stop this. This verb, to bear with, does not mean to put up with. It means to pick up, to carry and to take to a higher place. Perhaps the best known place this word is used in the Bible is in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, where we are called to bear one another's burdens. Now, when Paul tells us to bear one another's burdens, he's not telling you to stand by to see your brother or sister with a burden and go, that's a pretty big burden over there. You can pick it up any time now. No, what he tells us is to pick it up for them. To bear it for them. To carry it for them. That's what Paul is saying here. It means the strong are to serve the weak by sustaining them. This word to bear is the word that's used for Jesus Christ bearing our diseases in Matthew 8. It's the word that's used when Jesus Christ bears his cross in John chapter 19. I want you to further remember that this is not an option. Paul says we are obligated to bear with each other. So are you willing to listen to Paul's exhortation to bear the weak? Not just standing by with anger, not just pointing out where they're wrong, but sacrificing. Giving up your rights for the sake of your brother or your sister. Paul is exhorting you now to bear with the weak. Now, this exhortation also has in mind the benefit of the weak Christian. Because the weak Christian is in a difficult place. We might even say a slippery place. Because someone who has a strong conscience who believes that they are duty-bound not to do certain things or not to eat certain foods. What happens to them? Have you ever known someone like this who, for example, believes certain clothing is not acceptable? Do over a period of time, do they begin to loosen up their idea of what clothing is acceptable and not acceptable? Or do they not rather become more and more and more restrictive about clothing that's unacceptable. People who believe certain things should not be eaten, they become more and more and more restrictive. And this is the nature of the conscience. The strong conscience continues to bind the believer. And so if the weak brother is left to his own devices, he will become even more and more sensitive. He will be bound up in a lifestyle of sensitivity. And so the strong need to build up the weak without breaking them. Paul picks this up in verse 2. 
He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. He tells the strong to please his neighbor. But there is a very important qualifier here. It is not an absolute statement. Now think about that. What would the church be like if Paul were telling you always to do whatever someone else asked you to do? Well, you don't even have to think about that. Think about a family. Think about what life would be like if I told you wives to do whatever your husband wanted, no matter how dumb it was, or how much it was not even in his own interest. Do you think that would be productive in your marriage? Or husbands, what have I said? The key to marital bliss is just doing whatever your wife wants. Giving her everything she wants, answering every request that she has. That would not make for a strong marriage, would it? It certainly won't make for a strong church. So Paul is not saying that we are to please absolutely others, but rather we are to please our neighbor for their own good. We are not called to be people pleasers. We are called to be God builder uppers. And that's what Paul has called us to Previously, in chapter 14, in verse 19, he tells us that we are to build each other up. The idea is a spiritual strengthening of fellow believers so that the whole body of Christ will be built up. This was what Paul's ministry was all about. We see it most favorably and most commonly in his first letter to the Corinthians. You remember that church at Corinth was made up of a variety of groups, of factions. Paul tells us right at the beginning of that letter, some say, oh, I'm of Apollos. No, no, I'm of Peter. No, no, I'm of Paul. No, 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 I'm of Jesus. They're made up of separate groups warring amongst themselves. And so Paul over and over again in that letter strikes the theme, you are to build each other up. You are to do what causes for building up. He says this over and over again. This is after all why Jesus gave the church evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 4. It is for the building up of the body of Christ, for the building up of the saints. And so we are to seek the good of our fellow Christians. Not some generic good. Their good. Now this is important for you to understand. Paul is not telling you this just so that the church would be more effective. Even though it will be. He's not saying it just so that the church will be more peaceful. Even though it will be. He's saying it because this is how you live out the gospel. You think of others before yourself. You want what is good for your brothers and sisters. And because this is a gospel priority, Paul next points us to the life of Jesus himself, the divine example. And so he begins verse 3 with this little word, for. We've seen this before in Paul's letter to the Romans. It is a marker of Paul's argument. It signals the reason that we are to obey his exhortation in verses 1 and 2. It is important for us to see that Paul is using Jesus as an example for us to follow. For Christ did not please himself. We do not please ourselves because Christ did not please himself. Now, there is a difficulty here. 
Because we, as 21st century Reformed Christians, have been trained to be skeptical about claims that Jesus is our example. Now, why is that? It's because of attempts by unbelievers to reduce Jesus to only an example. Those who deny that he is God, those who deny his substitutionary death, they want to make Jesus an example like other examples. They're happy to say, oh, I like Jesus. I like what he says in the Bible, this whole do unto others business. He's a wonderful example. You know, like Buddha's a wonderful example, like Gandhi's a wonderful example, like Muhammad's a wonderful example. Jesus is up there in the panoply of examples. And so we rightfully say, that is not true. Jesus is not just my example, he's my savior. But just because Jesus is not only an example, does not mean that Jesus isn't also an example for us. He is your Savior, but He's also your example. And so we do not please ourselves because Jesus didn't please Himself. And so this idea goes far beyond common sense or effectiveness. We follow Jesus not because He's smart, not because He's good, even though He's both, but because we are to live out the gospel that he has brought to us. Jesus brings us the gospel of grace. And the result of that is that we are changed. And we are called to be a blessing to others so that they may also have this gospel change. Paul is telling you to live out the gospel, to be a blessing to others so that they are changed. Because after all, if there was anyone who deserved to please himself, it was Jesus. Now think about how this relates to the issue that Paul is describing. Paul has been telling us in the context of the church that we are not to live to please ourselves. We're not to put our needs first. We're not to live in such a way that tears others down. Now our response might be, but but I have this freedom. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I'm not sinning when I do this. Because what we want to be the first and only question is, am I free to do this? Is this a sin to do this? But Jesus teaches us that the much more important question is, will my actions build up my brother or sister? After all, we don't need to ask the question, Would Jesus have sinned by doing this? We know he wouldn't have. He was perfect in all his ways. Anything he did would be righteous and good, and yet he chose not to do many things for the sake of others. Now, what does this look like in Jesus' life? I think the first and most obvious is that Jesus was patient with others. He delayed his satisfaction in order to instruct and bear with others. Now, can you imagine? I think sometimes we think about the Gospels and the the difficulty for Jesus as the Pharisees and Sadducees attacked him. And we are amazed at his patience, at his wisdom, at the words he uses in the middle of that. And that is true. 
But I want you to think about walking around for three years with Peter, James, and John. Do you have any idea how many times Jesus must have repeated himself? The only one who may have a good idea of this is moms of children. Don't you have it about up to here when you repeat the same thing for the twelfth time? Now, imagine Jesus. There would be no stronger person. He knows perfectly what the Bible commands and forbids. He knows perfectly what is right and what is wrong. And not only that, he has explained it, and he is the perfect teacher. And then a month later, something comes up, and Peter says, Well, I don't know what the answer to that is, Lord. Now, Peter, God has been merciful to him that he gave Peter Jesus and not me. Because I'd want to smack my own forehead and then smack Peter's forehead and say, Come on, we just went over this. How many times do we have to go over this? But that was all of Jesus' life. That was all of his interactions with everyone. He never put himself first. Do you ever hear Peter saying to the disciples, Now, we're not going to talk about this now because I'm busy. Or I want to get something to eat. You just go hang out for an hour or so. I'll come back and get with you later. No, he's always patient with others. He always bears with others. And everything he does is not to show how skilled he is, how moral he is, how perfect he is, but to build them up. That's who Jesus is. All of his life was designed to build others up. And not just the major significant events. The everyday actions of Jesus built up those around him. Are you ready to live like Jesus? Can you give up being right? Can you not insist on what is best for you, for the sake of others around you? Jesus has given you an example to follow. Paul is calling upon you to follow. Jesus. Now, it's at this point that you might raise an objection. You might say, well, I can try and build others up, Pastor. I can even wait for my own rights. But when someone tries to hurt me or to tear me down, then all bets are off. I'm not going to let them attack me. Then, this building up is done. Now, as usual... Paul anticipates our objections. We've seen this so many times in this book, haven't we? Paul anticipates our objection, and so he tackles it in the second half of verse 3. He says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What Paul is telling us is that Jesus not only did not please himself, but that he suffered for others. And so Paul quotes a wonderful messianic psalm to make his point. He quotes Psalm 69. Now, Psalm 69 is not as well known as Psalm 1 or Psalm 23, but it is the favorite psalm of the New Testament writers. Twenty-two times in the New Testament, they either quote it or summarize it. Why is this? It's because this psalm speaks of the sufferings of Christ. It is a prediction of the humility of Christ who suffered for his people. And so Paul quotes 69.9 to show that Jesus was so far from pleasing himself that he bore the insults and wickedness of men. 
Now look closely at what the quote says. It doesn't say that Jesus bore reproaches against himself. It doesn't say he bore attacks against himself. It doesn't even say that he bore the reproaches against his people. Now, Jesus did that, but there's something even more Paul wants us to see. He bore the reproaches against God. When the wicked insulted and mocked God, Christ bore those insults. All the anger and the hatred against God by men was directed at Jesus. Now, why is this important? It's because Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. That is, what Jesus did was so much greater than what Paul is asking you to do. If Jesus bore the reproaches for the glory of God and the good of his people, why would it be such a big thing for you to bear the weakness of fellow believers in Christ? For God's glory and their good. Jesus is our example. We can look to him and see how we are to live, to act, and to speak. That does not mean we're able to act exactly like Jesus, but we can never say we do not know what the goal that we are directed toward is. You know how you are called to live. All you need to do is to look at Jesus. The third thing that Paul tells us builds off the first two. Paul is calling us to bear with the weak and to build up our fellow believers. He encourages us to do that with the example of Jesus. And now he turns to instruction. Specifically, how the scriptures give us instruction on this matter and more broadly on all matters of the Christian life. Now, this should not be a surprising transition because Paul has just used the scriptures, Psalm 69, to make his point about Jesus' example. And this is Paul's typical way of arguing in the book of Romans. You may recall, Paul will have a logically consistent, tight argument, and then he caps it off with a quotation from the scriptures. That's his way of saying, it's not just me, Paul, saying this. This is God saying this. And so once again, he starts out in verse 4 with another for, this word again. This word for is telling us the reason why Paul appeals to the scriptures in verse 3. This is foundational for us, because so many people around us would say, why would you quote an old, dusty book to tell me how to live? What relevance does the Bible have today? Some will even take Jesus' example and set it against the Bible. They'll say, well, I don't need the Bible. I don't need to read the Bible. I just need to follow Jesus' example. But if you think about how ridiculous that is, where do you find Jesus' example? Spoiler alert, it's in the Bible. So how can you do away with the Bible to have the example of Jesus? You need the Bible to know who Jesus is and what he's done. And so Paul is now telling us that following the Bible is essential to following Jesus. He tells you that the very purpose of the Bible is instruction. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And so we 
all need to be instructed. We need to have the way pointed out to us. Have you ever driven and thought you knew where to get to a place and realized that you were lost? Now, I know this is going to be hard for our millennials and younger people, but there were days before every phone was a GPS and where you had flip maps. And sometimes you didn't even have flip maps. Sometimes you would call someone and they would say, go down this road and turn right at the McDonald's and go just past the, uh, the Whataburger and then bear left at the grocery store. And you'd wonder, well, which grocery store? I hope I know it when I see it. And you would get lost. You wouldn't know the way to go. And if someone gave you specific instructions, the way to go, oh, how much easier it was. Right? That's what I love about GPS now. I'm completely at the hands and the whims of my GPS. And if I get lost, you probably act like me. What do you say when you get lost and you're late somewhere? Well, I just went where the GPS told me to go. I can't help it. We need someone to show us the way. And that's no less true in the Christian life than it is in driving. And so do you see what Paul is doing here? He's not giving us a lecture about the Bible. He's not giving us a dissertation with bullet points about what the Bible is and what its authority is. No, in the middle of a very practical subject, one in which there is great difficulty navigating, one that is hard to live out properly, what Paul does is he points us to the Bible. What Paul's saying is there's no more practical source of education and information than the Bible. He's telling us that not only is the Bible authoritative, but that it's also helpful. In order to live godly lives, we have to start with right thinking. Right thinking leads to right actions. Wrong thinking leads to wrong actions. And the way we have right thinking is by being under the instruction of the Bible. That's why the Bible was written, Paul says in verse 4. It was recorded for our benefit so that we who live 2,000 years later can have the benefit of this instruction so that we can fulfill our lives in the way that God wants us to. And Paul shows us the value of this instruction in at least two ways in verses 5 and 7. First, in verse 5, he follows his statement about the value of the Bible with a prayer wish. It is a wish that God would accomplish in you the exhortation of verses 1 and 2. It is a wish that if we are to live in harmony, it must be God who brings it about. And the way that God brings it about is through the teaching of His Word. It is God's Word. It is His communication to us of his will. And then in verse 7, Paul ends this section with a repetition of his original exhortation. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He tells you to welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. Now, what does that look like? How has Christ welcomed us? Well, we go to the Bible to find that. We don't even have to leave this book, the book of Romans, to find out how Christ has welcomed us, how he has, by his grace, come alongside us and given us new life. We who are undeserving, he has shed his love abroad upon us. If you are ever unsure about what God wants from you, 
if you're ever uncertain how to face a situation, the place to turn is the Bible. It doesn't directly address every single specific question you may have. The Bible will not tell you which college you should attend. It will not tell you which house to buy. But it is God's instructions for your life. It points you to the way you are to go. That's because it points you to Jesus. The last thing that Paul tells us is that God's instruction to us, the Bible, give us hope. Paul tells us that the Bible gives us two other things related to instruction. It not only points the way to Jesus, but in doing that, it gives us endurance and encouragement. Look again at verse 4. Through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now we've seen this word endurance before. In chapter 5 and in chapter 8, it means to press on, to endure in the face of difficulty. But it also means to be patient in the midst of challenges. And so you can see why this word is so on point here for Paul's discussion. Why is it hard to bear with the weaker brother? Well, the answer is because you're impatient. And so am I. We want the weaker brother to get their act together, like Yesterday. What are you waiting for? Don't you see that clear in the Bible? How many times do I have to explain it to you? But you see, Paul tells us, the scriptures give us patience. They give us endurance. They give us the big picture. They give us the example of Jesus. So Paul tells you when you need endurance, when you need patience to go to the Bible. It'll help you with that. The second thing the Bible helps you with is encouragement. Again, this is practical. When we are faced with a challenge, if we are unsure, if we can keep moving on, we need someone to tell us that we can do it, that we can make it. That's what the Bible does. Think about when you learned how to ride a bike. Especially the young people here. You remember when you learned how to ride a bike? How did you learn? Did Dad say to you, the bike's in the garage... Go ahead and get on it. See how it works. Let me know. Is that what dad does? No. No, what dad does is he goes out with you on the bike and he grabs the back of the bike. And even if your dad is old like me, he runs alongside the bike holding you up. And the whole time he's doing that, he's saying, you can do it. Look at you. You're riding. You're going. And then eventually dad lets go so that you actually are riding the bike. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Dad's behind you and you can hear, you're riding, you're doing it, you're going straight, you're great. Keep going, keep going. That's the picture of how the Bible keeps us on the path to Jesus. It encourages us. It lets us know that we're on the right path. That Jesus is with us. And so the end of this endurance and the end of this encouragement is hope, Paul says. In verse 4. Now this is not the kind of hope like, I hope so, or I hope it happens, but I'm not really sure. No, this is a certain hope that is set before us in the Bible. It is a hope that we can count on, and that because of this, we can live our lives in light of this hope. We follow Jesus 
because of the hope set before us in His Word. Living the Christian life is hard. You are called to die to yourself. To put others and their needs before your own. To suffer and to bear with your brothers and sisters. How can you possibly do that? Well, the short answer is you can't in your own power. But you don't have to. The Lord has given you Jesus as your example. The one whom you can follow. And he's given you his word to instruct you and to guide you, to give you encouragement and hope in the hardest of times. And he's given you his grace. That's why Paul ends verse 7 with the important statement that Christ has welcomed you. Never forget that. All that you are and all that you are called to be comes from Jesus. He is our example, but he is also our source of life and hope. Let's pray.